Well, both in my diet and in my real life, I like things sugar-coated. Uh, you know, some people talk about how they just start craving, they are savory snack people, and I just can't get it. I mean, I'm, I'm all for savory snacks, but most of the time, I want something with sugar in it. I have learned that sugar is my favorite food, and sugar is delicious, and it only makes things better. Uh, how many of you are the savory people? You like savory snacks more? How many, how many of you like sugary stuff like you're on my team? Yeah. And then, like, if I, you know, it's really good, it's the sweet and salty. That little mixture, that's a heavenly little mixture, too. But um, if I get to do that, I gotta, I'm going to pick something that's sweet. I like cookies, cakes, desserts in most every form. Um, but in my real life, I also like things, you know, a little sugar-coated. I like the edge taken off, the bitterness taken off. Um, I think our world is often too harsh, especially nowadays. Um, I don't get the constant, the sky is falling mindset that we are constantly hammered with all the time. Uh, not every bad politician means the end of democracy as we know it. Not every cultural trend is proof of Satan's victory and evidence of the end times. Not every person who has bad opinions or is on the other side of an argument than you is evil in its purest form. Those things just are not true. That's not how the world works. I think life would be a little better if we allowed ourselves to sprinkle a little, little sugar on things and take away the bitterness of most of the current news events and current trends that our world is trying to feed us um, so that we can see past, again, the bitter taste of um, what we see in people and what's presented about people, and we can give people the benefit of the doubt. Uh, we can see that the moment we're living in is probably not the most important moment in human history. Human history is a big thing, and we are like one tiny little blip of it. Like if human history was a song, we might be two or three notes in that song. Like there's more going on than just our moment. Um, and the way that the things that we're, we're angry at or scared about are rarely as bad as they are presented to us. And so I think like our world, it's almost like our world is a hypochondriac. You know, everything's, oh, we're going to, like, I feel like, I don't, I've never been diagnosed, so I use this term loosely, but I feel like I've got kind of low-level hypochondria. Um, for like the last 25 years of my life, there's been a little voice in my head telling me that every ache, pain, cough, or cold probably means I should plan my funeral. Uh, that's just how it's always been. And so um, I, uh, you know, unsurprisingly, I'm still alive and kicking after all of that. For all these years, I've been convinced I was dying. Um, and so I usually now voice those negative concerns to my wife. She sprinkles a little sugar on it and tells me I'm being an idiot and not going to die. Like, it's very wonderful. She does it in, like, a sweet, loving way, mind you. But, I mean, that's kind of what she's getting at. Like, I, you know, something the other day, I, I went to the doctor for my, week, my normal physical. And I was like, hey, my toe's been hurting. Well, before I went into the doctor, I told Abby, I was like, they're probably going to find something horrible and have to cut my foot off. And she's like, are you kidding me? Like, like what is wrong with you? Um, turns out I just have a touch of toe arthritis, which is, that was, I didn't feel any better to get that news, by the way. Um, so, um, but here's what's so strange about how we look at the world and how harsh we are um, in how we view others. Uh, it's so strange in that when we look at other people and the wrong that they commit, Man, we're so harsh, we're so judgmental, we're so unforgiving, we're skeptical of others, we, we assume the worst of others, we cut other people no slack, almost any anymore, we give them no room to be a human, 
You know, when people make mistakes, you know the, you know, the uh, common phrase is like, well, it's just human, right? We give no, people no room to be human. We expect them to be perfect at all times, morally and in every other way. And we act like their mistakes are the end of the world. But, oh, we, you know, we'll, make, we'll talk about how horrible they are. We'll whisper in our gossip about it and tell the people, well, you know what they did? We even use the wrongs of other people to boost ourselves up and pat ourselves on the back by saying, can you believe what they did? I would never do anything like that. What is wrong with them? We're so harsh in how we look at others. But when it comes to ourselves, boy, do we give ourselves tons of slack, tons of grace. We explain every mistake that we make as if it's no big deal. When we sin, when we mess up, boy, oh boy, we have a list of excuses lined up and ready to go about why what we did is no big deal. But what they did is the worst deal that's ever been done. We will judge others by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions. So it doesn't matter what other people meant to do. It only matters what they did. But for us, it doesn't matter what we did. It only matters that we meant to do better. It's so hypocritical, I think is the biblical word for it, that we point one set of judgments at other people and we hold ourselves to a completely different set. We sugarcoat the goodness out of our own lives, words, and actions, but we're okay to let other people sit in the bitterness of their own mistakes. And as much as I like to excuse my poor choices and sinful behaviors, I have to come to terms with the fact that that's not okay. Um, As we have been kind of walking through the life of Jesus um, in the book of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament, it's one of the first biographies we have of Jesus, it's the first book there, Um, and one thing Matthew wants to make very clear is that Jesus is coming to set up a kingdom, which is something that we don't really relate to. We think of nations and governments, but we don't think of kingdoms where there's one ruler who has all the say and the ultimate authority. Well, Jesus is coming to set up a kingdom where he is the king, the ultimate authority on all things. And he says in his kingdom that will one day take over all of creation, in his kingdom, this sort of hypocritical, everybody's judged but me mindset is not going to fly. That's not how he wants his kingdom to operate. His kingdom doesn't work on the normal ways of the world, according to what we call standard. Um, This idea of backstabbing, grudge-holding, revenge-plotting, those things don't fly in his kingdom. Greed, envy, lust, pride, animosity toward others, those things don't fly in his kingdom. A lot of the things that our world says are normal, a lot of the things that we let live in our hearts as normal, Jesus says, They don't have a place in my kingdom. And if you hold on to those with a death grip and you want those in your life, then maybe you don't have a place in my kingdom as well. And there's times when the language gets really strong and scary like that. Well, we're currently in the part of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount, where Matthew records the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. Um, In this sermon, Jesus spends a large amount of time um, setting the standards for what his kingdom is going to be. And he's raising the bar constantly. He's like, here's what you think it's going to be? Oh boy, no. The bar of what I want my kingdom to be is way up here. And when you're, the one, when you're used to one thing, and it's normal, and it's fine, and somebody comes along and raises the bar, it can be a little scary at first. Uh, when I was in high school, I ran the high hurdles. And... Um, as you get towards your senior year, people start asking, are you going to do this in college? And I was like, I don't know. I'd never even thought of it. And they were like, you know, hurdles are higher in college. Okay, sure. How much, how, how much worse can it be? 
And it's three inches, by the way. That's the difference between a high school high hurdle and a college high hurdle. And so we, you know, well, let's see what that is. And we raised a few of them up. Three inches, it might as well have been three feet. It was like all the difference in the world. That little bit, three inches, I mean, goodness sakes, it was impossible. I felt like I could never, ever do that. And it was like trying to jump over a bunch of walls right in front of the other. Um, And so that's kind of this idea that we see when it comes to raising the bar. Uh, It's a bit of a shock, and that's what Jesus does. He says, here's my kingdom. Here's the bar you think you're trying to meet. But actually, the bar for what's acceptable behavior, what's acceptable attitudes, what's acceptable content of your hearts, it's so much higher than you ever thought possible. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, spends almost zero time letting us off the hook, zero time letting us sugarcoat our lives so that we can, you know, feel comfortable in our sin and continue along with it. Instead, he says, hey, there's a better way of life a higher way of life that I want for all of you, the kind of life that God wanted for his people from the beginning, the kind of life that humans have spent centuries avoiding, but there's a better way of life, and I've come to finally set the bar and help us to reach it, help you people to reach it. And so he calls us to a better way of life, higher than anything we've ever known before, And what we're going to do is we're going to kind of cover a pretty big chunk today of Jesus just raising the bar. Uh, We're going to finish up Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 17 and go through the end of the chapter, and there's like 48 verses. Um, We won't read it all, but we'll read a pretty decent-sized chunk of it. Um, And in this, what Jesus does is he's encouraging his Jewish audience, that's who he's preaching to, um, that he hasn't come to get rid of the Old Testament law code that they live by. You see, they lived by the law code that was given in the first five books of the Bible, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There's a law code in there that God gave the people through Moses, and it touched on every area of a Jewish person's life. It was absolutely, every aspect of their life was guided by this law, um, from the clothes that they wore, to the food that they could eat, to the holidays in their calendar. All of it was guided by this law. And um, there had gotten to be this kind of rumor that Jesus didn't care about that stuff. Now, what was really going on was around the time Jesus came on the scene, there had risen up to be this group of of Jewish teachers and leaders called the Pharisees. If you're a Bible person, you've heard this stuff before. You've heard the, the word Pharisees. And what the Pharisees did, and I'm sure it started out with really good intentions, was they loved God's law so much and wanted to help people not break God's law that they created a set of even more strict laws that they wanted people to live by. And the idea was, if people keep our super ultra strict laws, then they're never even going to come close to breaking God's laws. But what happened over time was they started to see their man-made laws as serious and as authoritative as God's laws. So that when somebody broke a Pharisee law, even though they hadn't broken one of God's laws, they started to say, you're a terrible, horrible sinner. There's something wrong with you. Even though they weren't breaking God's law, they were just breaking a man-made rule that was meant to be more like a guardrail that kept you from going in the ditch. And so Jesus, when he shows up, he doesn't care a hoot about the Pharisees' made-up rules. Not one little bit. And he's constantly breaking the Pharisees' rules. They're made-up, man-made rules. And because of that, they were often saying, he doesn't care about God's law. He doesn't care about this thing that God gave us. And they were saying that he came to kind of do away with it, and he was teaching this totally new thing that didn't make any sense for Jewish people. And Jesus came to say, 
No, I care more about God's law than anybody who's come before it. And not only do I care more about it, but he, he says, I come to fulfill God's law. I come to uphold it more than anyone ever has, and I want to teach you how to do the same. And so he's not here to do away with it. He's here to fulfill it and help us get to the heart of it. And that's where Jesus starts this little section in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. So he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's setting the stage, saying, I know what you've heard, but that's not true. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Iota, iota was their version of an I. And a dot, you know, they have punctuation just the way we had punctuation. Every letters had, letters had little marks over them. And he's saying, the least letters and the least punctuation, we're not getting rid of any of it. He's like, I didn't come to erase or change any of it. All of it holds. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom that I've come to set up. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he starts by saying, what you've heard about me is not true. And then he kind of makes this claim that what the Pharisees are doing is not the right way, that that's not going to lead to the righteousness that these made-up laws were intended to do. And this would have floored everybody, okay? He says, unless you're more holy than the holy people, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, that, he, that's like saying, um, unless you're smarter than Einstein, unless you're faster than Usain Bolt was in his prime, unless you can play golf better than Tiger did in his prime, unless you're more popular than Taylor Swift, it, you're not going to make it. Like he's, he's saying, if, unless you're better than the best. And so they would have been like totally shocked and disheartened by this, and they would have felt like he was asking them to do the impossible because they thought those Pharisees were the best of the best, that they were the most holy people. But Jesus comes and says, don't, don't walk that road. They've got, there's a different way to follow. And so it's no wonder that people thought he was kind of getting rid of the law. It's no wonder people felt bought into this rumor that was going around. But what Jesus was really doing was trying to take this Old Testament law and reframe it in a way to show people what true righteousness meant. And he wanted to do that by saying, here's these Old Testament laws, and God gave them because he has a, a heart that hates sin and wants to lead you to something better. And these laws were meant to be signposts on that journey. They were meant to guide you toward godliness. Um, and so as he explains it and helps people understand the heart of God behind these Old Testament laws, what he's doing is saying, here's the law, but what God really wants is way up here. The bar is way higher than you thought it was going to be. And seeing the heart... Um, really means pointing to a standard that nobody had ever seen before, like a standard of behavior and living and um, looking after the inner contents of your heart that like nobody had ever even tried before. And so what Jesus is saying here probably would have freaked them all out. Absolutely everyone would have sit there and go, like, I mean, it would have been just like one impossible thing after the other of them being like, I can't believe he's saying this. Who's ever going to make it to eternity with him? And so what Jesus does then after saying this is he gives us six examples through the verse of chapter 5 of here's the Old Testament law that God gave. You've heard that it was said, here's the law. But I say to you that behind that law, here lies the heart of God. 
and he kind of uncovers it and points us to living the way God truly wanted us to live. And he does it over and over, six examples. We're going to look at three of them. So here's the first one going on in verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old. So he's like, remember those old, the old laws? You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now that's a, I mean, that's a difference, right, between killing somebody and being angry at somebody. Like, bar raised instantly. I mean, I, I won't ask us to raise hands if anybody's murdered, just in case. I think it'd be a showstopper on the service if somebody raised their hand. Uh, but, but I think if, I re- if we said, hey, who's been angry with people in your life? Everyone's hand's going to go up. How many of us have kept that anger alive for days for somebody in your life? All of our hands are going to go up. He raised the bar. And then he keeps going. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. That was the Jewish council that kind of determined certain punishments. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus takes this very common law, one of the Ten Commandments, okay? Even now we know the Ten Commandments, right? They knew all 600 of the laws by heart. We do not, but we at least know the Ten. We at least know those were probably pretty important. And so he starts off with, you've heard that murder is wrong. And they're like, yeah, that's one of the ten, man. Do not murder. And then Jesus points out that really the problem is not with the act of murder itself. That murder is really just a symptom. The real problem is the animosity and the hatred that we let exist in our hearts when somebody wrongs us in some way. It's that internal stuff that builds and festers that actually leads us to murder or to hurt somebody else. It's the internal stuff that is the real problem that leads to the external act of killing. It's festering anger towards a person. It's getting to a place of contempt when he says, you fool. That's that that feeling where you just, you hate somebody so much, they have wronged you and you've let it fester and sit so long that you just think they're a lesser kind of person than you. That They don't even deserve life. They deserve to be the recipient of only your anger and your rage, not grace or forgiveness. And he says, when you let that live inside of you, there is a level of brokenness between you and another person that is really the problem at the root of everything. Murders a ways away from that. But the real problem starts way before you raise your hand in anger towards somebody. So um, the real issue isn't murder, but what lies behind murder. Now, don't worry. Jesus is still very anti-murder. Like, again, he's not saying murder's okay, but just don't be angry about it. Like, that's, that doesn't make sense. He's taking it even deeper. He says sin starts long before you start hurting another person. And so what Jesus is doing is he's not doing away or diminishing this Old Testament law. He's showing people that God's real heart is, I want there to be peace between all people. And if it gets to murder, that's like the worst possible place that we could be. We've totally gotten away from God's desire if it's come to that. And so he shows us that what's wrong is a lack of peace between two human beings. And then uh, he goes on to another example. Let's skip down to verse 27, though. Another one of the Ten Commandments. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus tackles adultery, which is having a sexual relationship with someone who is not your spouse, or if you're single, having sexual relations with somebody who is already married. Again, one of the Ten Commandments. And again, Jesus kind of starts peeling back the layers and saying that 
Adultery is a symptom of a deeper disease, a disease called lust, something that lives in your heart. The real problem is when men or women look at somebody that they find attractive who is not their spouse, and they entertain thoughts and emotions about being with that person, and they let that live in their heart and build in their heart, to have space in their heart for those urges and thoughts to play. Lust is a problem well before any physical relationship starts, before anyone acts on it. And God's hope, again, is apparently that these Jewish people wouldn't just look at the laws, but they would spend time really thinking about them, meditating on them, and say, why does God hate adultery so much? Because it leads you. It's when you have let your heart lead you away from your spouse. Let that, th- that desire for the person that you're supposed to be with be broken or changed in some way. And that is a terrible problem because one of the deepest ways God wants to show us his love for us and how we should love other people is in the commitment of marriage. And so God's heart behind it is not just that we would follow his rules, but we would, have, we would let him shape the very way that our hearts work and think and move so that we would run away from sin at every turn and that we would become a people who truly love God in every way that we can and we love other people in every way that we can. And then we'll do one more. Let's skip down to verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So you've heard, if you're going to make a promise, don't break it. Okay, Don't make a promise knowing you're not going to keep it. That's kind of the, the gist of the law. He says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the king. And do not take an oath by your head. For you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. So he says, take the command to not make false promises. I say, don't even make promises at all. Um, and, he, and he uses the example, don't swear, by things. I don't do this. Like, this doesn't come up a lot in my adult life, but I remember a ton of it when I was a kid. I remember, you know, being on the playground at school, and some kid would say something ridiculous, you know, like that their grandpa was like a cowboy astronaut or something ridiculous like that. And we we're all like, nuh-uh. And they're like, uh-huh. I crossed my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And then, like, if you really kept going, they're like, no, I swear on my mom's grave. Even though their mom was at the room party the day, couple days before and was clearly not dead, right? And they'd swear on things. I swear on my, you know, I grew my, on my dog. And you're like, whoa, that's your best friend, man. Don't swear on your dog. And, and like that kind of stuff. Like you would add like you swear on something to prove how serious you are, okay? And so, again, I don't come across that much in my life. But the idea that, he's, that, that Jesus is saying here is the reason we, he says don't make promises at all is because your simple answer to all things should be so truthful so consistently honest that nobody would ever even doubt it, that you say yes and you mean yes, that you say no and you mean no and everybody knows it so that nobody goes, do you promise? You should never even have to get to that point because why would you ever lie? You would be so full of truth and integrity that you would never lie. That's a difference between don't make false promises and always be truthful inside and out so that everybody knows to trust you. And he goes and he raises the spar over and over and over again. And so, yes, I can see how so many people thought that Jesus was changing the law, was getting rid of the law. 
but he really wasn't. He was fulfilling these laws. And he fulfilled them in several ways. It's kind of a very layered thing when you start looking into how did Jesus fulfill these laws, but we'll give you two. Um, One, he kept the law perfectly. He himself perfectly kept every one of those 600 Old Testament laws. The Pharisees' laws, not a little bit, but the Old Testament laws of God, he kept them so incredibly faithfully. Um, But the second way that Jesus kept these laws and fulfilled these laws was by helping us get to the heart of the law. It was by showing us what God really wants us to get to, the kind of people that God wants us to be. He helps us to go deeper than the laws, to look at the, 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 the kind of people that the law was pointing us to be, not just people who don't murder, not, that just people, not just to be people who don't cheat, not to just people who don't make false promises, but the kind of people who are so full of love for God and love for others that we would never even dream of breaking those laws of God in the first place. And what Jesus does is he helps us see what God really wanted his people to be, the the heart behind the law, Um, so that we saw that God didn't just want to direct our external behaviors and get us to be looking good on the outside. God wanted to shape the internal contents of our heart so that we became a different kind of people. And you know what? When you have the inside shaped, when your insides are right, you don't have to be given a lot of rules on the outside. Because when you have been shaped to love God and love people the way that he wants you to, and someone says, don't cheat on your spouse, you would think, oh my gosh, I would never even dream of that. Don't tell lies. Why would I ever tell a lie? God wants me to be honest. He is truth. I need to be truthful. The laws seem like almost a ridiculously low bar after you start getting yourself right with God. And those laws, what, were, what they were meant to be was this thing that, yes, people kept them, but they meditated on them to see who God was and why he gave those laws in the first place. And so G- Jesus helped us to get to the heart of the law that was behind it all along. And this is so much more powerful than giving people a list of do's and don'ts. It really is. But it's a lot harder. I mean, it looks a lot more impossible, a lot more scary. Um, because, again, I don't think we've got too many murderers in our midst. But we've probably got some people who have sat with grudges for days, weeks, months, years. You know, I don't think we've got of adulterers in, in the midst, but we've lust. I mean, how, how, how many people can say, I've never lusted for someone a single day in my life? I mean, yeah, I would love to say that I, I'm an honest person, and I like to believe I'm an honest person, but lies? Oh, man, of course I've told my fair share of those. And to say that I'm honest through and through, I would love to say that's true, but sometimes there, you're in that situation and you just feel like, if I tell the truth, I'm going to look real bad, and so a little white lie is going to make me feel a little better and make this conversation a lot smoother, and the little white lie comes right out. I would love to say that I'm perfect, but I am not. That law that God gives us is one thing, but Jesus raises the bar to this impossible level. And as difficult as it might be, and as scary as it might be, what he is doing, though, is he showing us what a beautiful kingdom he's coming to bring? What a beautiful world he wants to make. The kind of kingdom that Jesus is coming to set up is a kingdom where we aren't just monitoring behavior, but we're monitoring our hearts. Where we aren't just clean on the outside, but we're clean all the way through to the deepest parts of who we are. Uh, he doesn't just raise the bar, though, and they say, good luck. That's where we start to get scary, where it starts to get scary. Don't lie, don't lust, don't do anything. 
okay, I'm not going to be perfect. And if I got to be perfect to get into the kingdom of heaven, then I'm going to be a mess. He doesn't just, you know, throw us into the deep end and say, hope you can swim. No, Jesus does so much more than that. He would go on at the end of his ministry to carry a cross. And, on, and while he walking to the cross and being nailed to the cross, on his shoulders, he, he held every time you and I failed to live up to God's standard. Every time we struggled to be the people God made us to be. Every sin, every time we hurt other people. He took that all to the cross and he died for it, paying the punishment for our failure, the punishment that we deserved. And then he rose from death, showing us that this new life that he said to bring, that he said he came to bring, wasn't just a metaphor, but it was a tangible reality. That we aren't going to just be new creations in some sort of, you know, oh, I feel so much better. But we are really going to be made new from the inside out. We are going to be made into a new type of human who is capable of so much more than we are now. And then he sent us the Holy Spirit to live inside of the hearts of believers, to actually start doing the work of making us new, bit by bit, brick by brick. And the Spirit's daily work reshapes our hearts so that we can, over time, start to have our heart look like God's heart. And we would start to want what God wants and hate what God hates. Because i got to be honest, I spend a lot of my life enjoying what God hates, being drawn to what God despises, loving things that hurt other people. And the Spirit starts to rework that from the inside out so that I'm brand new and so can you. So that we want what God wants and we can live lives that he made us for. And it's such a beautiful picture that Jesus lays before us as he raises the bar. It's beautiful, it's powerful, it's real, and it's possible for us. Not on our own, but with the divine help of the Spirit living in us and with the, re- the refreshing of what Jesus did for us on the cross. That even today, as we sit here, a bunch of broken, imperfect humans with darkness in our hearts, even now, if we will surrender our lives to Jesus, he will rescue us and make us new from the inside out. And a lot of us have said, yes, I want that. And we've been on that journey for a while. And we can look back in the rearview mirror, not to say we're perfect now, but we can look back in the rearview mirror of life and go, wow, Jesus has done a lot in me. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for remaking me. Because the things I used to do, I wouldn't dream of doing now. And you start to realize, I'm a different person than I used to be when I started following Jesus. But if you're newer here, or you're earlier on your journey of faith, and you'd like to know more about this and how this newness can be yours, how this spirit can live inside of you, how you can find forgiveness and grace and mercy through Jesus, then I would encourage you, come catch me after the service. Or come to Next Steps next week. Um, I promise you, I'm not scary. I try not to be. Um, It's so funny when people are like, "Ah, I was a little nervous to come up and talk to you. I don't feel like I'm a scary person. I am not prone to bouts of rage where I punch strangers for asking silly questions. I don't do any of that. Um, In fact, talking to people about Jesus is literally my favorite thing to do. So that's like saying, hey, do you want to go do your favorite thing, Anthony, for a minute? I'm like, yeah, I do. Let's go do it. So you're going to make my day if you come talk to me. I promise you it doesn't have to be scary at all. Because even though Jesus raises the bar far beyond what we think we're capable of, when we come to him, even in our brokenness, even in our failing to live up to his standard, what we're going to find is not harshness, not judgment, um, not punishment, but grace and mercy and everlasting kindness. Let's pray.
Father, we're so grateful for the, the love that you model for us in this beautiful sermon. Uh, these verses start out very scary because you're raising uh, uh, the bar on behavior. You're raising the standard on what uh, you want from your people far beyond what people had even thought of at that point in time. And even for us today, it seems scary that you want us to be people who would never lie, never lust, uh, never fall short from what you want us to do in any way. That seems like a, such a scary standard. Um, but when we realize that you didn't just call people to that standard, but you came to help us be people who could live by that standard. And you gave us grace in the meantime through your death on the cross. You paid for our sins, past, present, and future, so that even though we're all a work in progress and we're still tripping it up today, we're, we're still forgiven. We're still forgiven even while we're messing up. And when we come back to you, we just find more grace. And then you give us the Holy Spirit to actually remake us from the inside out, little by little, over time, replacing uh, evil pieces of our heart with beautiful, shining new pieces that are pointed in your direction. And so as those pieces are swapped out day by day, we start to look like a new person. We start to act like a new person. We start to have a, a change in our desires. The, thing we, the things we once, once loved seem repulsive. The things we once hated bring us joy. And the things that once seemed impossible are now um, a normal everyday occurrence for us. And again, not so that we can brag, not so that we can take credit for it, but only by your power and your mercy and your grace to us and your Holy Spirit given in us. And so I pray that we would see that you raising the bar is a beautiful thing and you're pointing us towards eternity that will be better, an eternity where people won't hurt anyone. No one will lie or deceive or, or betray anymore, but it will be a world where there was peace um, between all people, in every direction, we will find peace and forgiveness and grace from others. We will find gentleness and love for, from you. We will find uh, just unending joy because the brokenness of this world has been done away with by your power and by your judgment and that we just get to live in your kingdom um, as people who have been made new. And we live in a better world that praises you and nothing gets in the way of that. And so I just thank you for that beautiful picture where you point us to something better. You guide us to a better future where we um, are better people. And it's a beautiful thing. And it's a humbling thing because most of us realize every day how far we are from being the kind of people you want us to be. Um, but we trust your grace, we trust your mercy, and we trust your power to get us there. So thank you, Jesus, for the salvation you bring and the daily work that you uh, do inside of each one of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.